to do that. I don't really like finishing you totally without singing. Can do that. Huh? You totally can do that. Are you singing the I'm last singing song? It. Totally. Oh, oh, man. See, I was gonna say he's gonna nix that. I was gonna move your song. I'll pray. All right, all right, all right. I don't know who that was, but Matthew McConaughey is in the house, apparently. All right, all right, all right. We are kicking off a new series this morning. We're doing something new. And for most of us, that is probably exciting because we live in a culture and day and age where the assumption is that new is always better, right? I think that comes from the technology age where typically new is better. New and faster computer chips means more efficient manufacturing and computational power and artificial intelligence and all of that stuff. New is always better. And so for those of you who love new, we're doing something new this morning. I've decided that for the next year, I'm going to have artificial intelligence write all of my sermons and I'm just going to deliver what they write. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Actually, someone said bad idea. Actually, I have tested chat GPT. I said, write a sermon on John 15 in three points, throw in a couple jokes. And uh, it actually wasn't half bad. It was a little wooden, but like content-wise, theologically-wise, it was spot on. The gospel was there. I mean, it was actually like you need a little, little, little human interaction to make, make something out of it, but it wasn't horrible. So strange, uh, strange new days we're living in. Anyways, we're, I'm obviously not doing that. I, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, we are, we are going to do something that's new. For those of you that get a little mm, skeptical of new, maybe some old souls in our, in our midst. Um, <laughs> somebody meant that. Uh, was it Terry? It was Terry. He's, he's old. He is old. That's good. <laughs> I love you, Terry. He's one of our elders. I can say it. I'm a good man. For those of you that are, that are wanting to, to stick with the old, and honestly, I'll say in regards to faith and Christianity, typically, we should be skeptical of new, and we should usually look back to the old. And so we are going to do a new thing, but we're going to do a new thing that is actually quite old. I've been praying and planning for what we're going to do for this year for about nine months, um, it's always in the back of my head, where are we going next, what are we going to do, and more specifically, Lord, what would you have us speak about? Obviously, it's going to be something from the Bible, but, but what do you want to tell your people through the, the people that, that deliver messages from, from up here? So I was praying about it for the last nine months, and about six or seven months ago, I started to think a lot about the makeup of our family. I've said before, I've joked, we're a motley crew, right? We've got people from all walks of life, and racial backgrounds and socioeconomic, all this stuff. We're as diverse as Henry County is diverse, which is awesome. But at this specific congregation, I've realized that we have a lot of folks who grew up in or around more traditional churches. So we have a lot of, a lot of Lutherans, a lot of Methodists, a lot of Catholics, a lot of folks coming out of rich faith traditions. I want to key in on that phrase with you for a second. Rich faith traditions. And don't raise your hand here. But I'm curious, of those of you who are coming out of some of these rich faith traditions, I'm curious how many of you would say that those traditions felt rich to you. My guess is that if you're here with us, perhaps the reason that you're here specifically at Crossroads is that some of those faith traditions had actually grown kind of stale for you personally. And please hear me correctly, I'm not slamming our Lutheran brothers and sisters or Methodists or Catholics, not at all. If 
if the churches that exist in, on, around our world, country, nation, county, if they're preaching the Bible and teaching the gospel of Jesus, they are on our team and we are on their team. So I'm not com- commenting about, about the tradition you came from, right? If they're teaching the Bible, preaching the Bible, teaching Jesus, we're all on the same team. But what I just said earlier, I, f- I feel like it is a little bit more of a commentary, not, a, not on those faith traditions so much as tradition itself. It's tradition itself, right? If we stick with any tradition long enough, if we're not careful to continually set before us the reason why we do what we do, if we're not careful, sometimes those traditions that we do day in, day out, Sunday after Sunday, if we're not careful to ask the question why and set that before us, sometimes our traditions can turn into just religious hoops that we just kind of jump through. Just check boxes that on our religious to-do list that we just sort of, I, I did my religious duty for the week, and I did X, Y, and Z because my family has done X, Y, and Z, and my grandma and grandpa before them, and, and we just, we check things off because, well, this is what we do, and we lose sight of the why, and so if we're not careful, those traditions that we once found, found life-giving, that shaped and molded our character and our community, if we're not careful, those things can sort of lose, lose their meaning and significance altogether. And that's because of a little thing known as familiarity. Familiarity has a habit of steering, stealing our awe and our wonder when it comes to traditions and really the gospel of Jesus. And so we have to work to keep things fresh, like bringing a saxophonist in for worship to spice things up a little bit, right? Sometimes it's nice to just have something a little bit different to keep things thre- fresh, to keep, keep us on our toes. The same is true of the religious habits and spiritual habits that we practice and the traditions that we practice. And so for those of you who have been with us for long enough, again, as I was thinking and praying about this, we did a series, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago on the Ten Commandments. We also did a series on the Lord's Prayer, And of all the series that we've preached through, those are two that stick out in my mind where I've had the most feedback. And it's all positive. People said things during those times to Wes and myself. Man, I I grew up saying the Lord's Prayer. We, We said this thing, but I never really stopped to think about what it meant. And I never stopped to think about what it teaches me about my relationship with and to God. The same thing was said about the Ten Commandments. We grew up hearing these things, but we talked about them, but we didn't really understand them until we heard some teaching here at Crossroads. And so that got me thinking. As I prayed on this, I started to think about the church calendar. The church calendar. Again, those of you who grew up in one of those rich faith traditions and followed a a more liturgical system, the church calendar, you'll know what I'm talking about, right? You grew up hearing about Advent and Lent and Pentecost and special days throughout the church calendar, calendar like All Saints Day. And different things that I'm sure one of your pastors growing up talked about. Maybe you knew what it was about, maybe you didn't, but these were the days and, and things that we celebrated. Those of you who didn't grow up in one of those rich faith traditions, you're like clueless about the church calendar. So you, you might be like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Advent? What? Epiphany? What is that? I have no idea. And honestly, I'm sort of in that camp with you. I did not grow up at a liturgical church until recently. We're part of a ministerial association. One of, our, one of the guys from, from our Lutheran churches was talking about what they're preaching on and following the church calendar, and I just I got really curious. So I'd ask questions, and he's like, well, we celebrate this at this time and this time. I was like, why? 
And when we talked about it, it's like, wow, there's some actually really rich stuff here. Wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be fun to take one of those old traditions and put a crossroads spin on it? Wouldn't it be fun to try and enrich some of those traditions that many of you grew up with to breathe some new and fresh life into it? Maybe if it's grown kind of stale. And so that's what we're going to do. For the next year, and maybe even through uh, the, the next summer, through, at least through the school year, maybe even through summer 2024, we're going to follow the church calendar using something called the Revised Common Lectionary. Now, you might be saying, what in the world is that? It's a fancy title for a book that is simply a Bible reading plan. It's a three-year Bible reading plan that follows the church calendar. If you're like, I still don't know what the church calendar is, I didn't either. So I went to, honestly, I didn't grow up with this stuff. So I'm, I'm in researching study. I went to a website that I found incredibly helpful. It's called gotquestions.org. If you, yeah, so you've been there. If you, if you ever have questions of faith, spirituality, the Bible, and you want an amazing resource, I have yet to find an article on there that wasn't, man, gospel truth and super helpful. So I typed it in there, gotquestions.org. What is the church calendar? Here's what the author writes. The church calendar is an annual schedule that commemorates certain days and seasons to help us remember the important acts of God in the history of redemption. Pretty good stuff. The church calendar technically starts in November. I've got a screen here for you with an outline of kind of how it works. So it starts there in the blue at the top right in Advent time. Advent is when we prepare for the coming of Christ and the Messiah for Christmas time. Naturally, after Advent, we celebrate Christmas because once Jesus has arrived, we talk about the story. That's the time where we focus for several weeks on the coming of the Messiah. After that, the church calendar moves into a time of Epiphany, which the, the screen, what does it say? The glory of Christ is the focus. To be honest with you, I still don't really know what Epiphany is. I'm going to have to read up more on that so I can enlighten you. Maybe some of you grew up in this tradition and you're like, here's what it means. Please come tell me. I would love to know. But I'm excited to learn. So we'll spend a time celebrating, focusing on Epiphany. From there, this will probably be a little bit more common, we'll move into a season of Lent. Lent is a season in the church calendar where we're really supposed to focus on the holiness of Christ. And from what I've gathered is put into some practice, some spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines that will help us become more like Christ in our own personal holiness. So we'll spend a little time in Lent. And don't worry, if if you've left one of these traditions, you're like, this was stale, I didn't like it, I didn't agree with it. I promise you, we are not going to make this weird. We're going to do this like Crossroads does it, okay? So so don't bail on us, all right? I promise, We'll we'll do it how you're used to doing it. And then we'll move into a time of Easter and then Pentecost where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit and commissioning all of you to be God's workmen, his missionaries in our world, right? You are disciples of Christ. You all are missionaries. You are saints equipped and sent to go out into our world and share the love of Jesus, which will bring us into the season that we're actually right in now called either after Pentecost, because it's after Pentecost. These guys are bright in the way they formed it, right? Or ordinary time. Ordinary time makes up about a third of the calendar year, and it's supposed to focus on the mission of Christ and his church. So we're going to try and answer the next 
uh, over the next uh, couple months, before we get into a season of Advent, we're going to be in ordinary time. Today is technically proper 17. Don't know what that means, but that's the day in the calendar, proper 17. We're going to kick it off today, spending time answering the question, now that we've received the Holy Spirit, what does it look like to live as Christians? What does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus? And so I've got a couple series outlined. Again, we're following the Revised Common Lectionary. That's a Bible reading plan that sketches out different readings for us to read that kind of follow the church calendar throughout the year. So they're setting our text that I'm going to preach on, that Wes, Seth, and some other folks are going to preach on, and then we'll preach it like we normally preach it. So we're going to kick off our series today with a series called No Fair. No Fair. Unpacking the joys and hardship of grace. So what does it look like to live as a gracious person in our life now that we've received grace from our Savior? After that, we'll move into a kind of a stewardship series. We're going to talk about the enemies of gratitude, the enemies of gratitude, learning to live with content and grateful hearts. How do we learn to live with content and grateful hearts? Be generous people. And lastly, we'll wrap up the season of ordinary time for this calendar year, focusing lastly on, the, on death, which I know sounds like major bummer, but it's not. We're going to learn how to face death with the hope of the resurrection. So that'll be kind of in October right before Advent starts. So that's what we're going to do. If you would like to read along with us in this series, if you want to know the the text that we're going to preach on the Sunday before we preach on it so you can read, we've got a new texting service. You can actually text Enriching Tradition to the number up on the screen or scan it and it will fill it in with something for you. All you have to do is push push send. Three times a week, I will send you one of the scriptures listed in the Revised Common Lectionary. The whole thing, not just the reference, it'll get right to your your inbox and your text message so you can read either the text that's going to be preached on or maybe an Old Testament passage that will kind of coincide or fit with it thematically. So if you want to get texted a couple verses throughout the week and maybe up your game a little bit on your understanding of the Bible and and read along, uh, you can text into this. If at ever time you say, man, this is too much text, don't don't type unsubscribe because that will opt you out of the whole thing and then you will never know what's going on here at Crossroads. But you can type end Devo and then you'll be opted out of this texting series, right? And all of that will be, if you text in, it'll explain all of it. We'll figure it out. Technology's amazing, right? Artificial intelligence. Awesome. All right. With that said, let's dive into our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to kick it off today in Matthew 16. Matthew 16. As you're turning there or getting a Bible out in front of you. I want to kick things off here a little bit by talking about entitlement. Entitlement. We live in a world full of entitled people. And before you think, yes, I know some of them, chances are you have some some of your own entitlement that you're dealing with as well. So don't be too quick to point the finger, right? But we do live in a world full of entitled people. People from all walks of life, socioeconomic backgrounds, late racial backgrounds, a bunch of people who in some way or another feel like they deserve something. And a lot of those people are very loud at expressing what they feel like they deserve or what's been unfairly withheld from them. Some of those feelings are rooted in reality. The world has been unfair to them, maybe to you. Some of the feelings that we have about our entitlements aren't necessarily true, though, either. Regardless, whether it's true or not, 
I think it's safe to assume that as human beings, we struggle with this feeling, with feeling entitled, with things being unfair. Whether it's in my house, a sibling's a little concerned about one of their brothers and sisters getting more ice cream than the other one, right? That's unfair. I need more. Or it's more weighty issues. Social injustice or prejudice against a foreigner or a refugee that's come to the United States, perhaps illegally, and now they're just trying to take care of their family. The word equity is thrown a lot around a lot today. So is the word, you've heard this, or the phrase that you've heard so much, social justice. Equity, fairness, and justice are, God, are, are words that actually God cares deeply about. He does. He cares deeply about these things. But church, let me suggest to you that these words, equity, justice, fairness, social justice, that we would all do well to let the Bible define for us rather than letting the so-called experts of our day define for us. I think we would all do well to allow Scripture to set our standard for what justice and righteousness is and to reorient our idea and standard of fairness as well to come in accordance with what God has told us in His Word. The reality is, if you live life in this world, you will experience injustice and things that are unfair. And yet, in those moments, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, you and I are still called to love and to give grace and to be gracious, like Jesus was to us. We started out our set this morning by singing about the amazing grace of Jesus. It is amazing. Receiving grace is amazing, isn't it? It's amazing to receive what we don't deserve. The promise that Jesus gave to us. He says, God will always be happy to see you. That's the promise. Why? Because of the price that Jesus paid. Now, was it fair for Jesus to have paid that price? He gave up his life. He was beaten, mocked, crucified to pay the price of grace to seal the promise that no matter what happens not for good that I have done nothing but the blood whether you do good or bad that's the promise the blood of Jesus covers you that was the price that was paid to dispense grace the reality that God will always be happy to see you it's amazing to receive grace, isn't it? Giving it is another thing entirely. Let me suggest to you this morning that as a people of God, we would all do well to loosen our grip on fairness and instead embrace a different F word. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Inevitably, your journey in discipleship as you follow Jesus, you will reach a moment where an action or an option presents itself for you to choose what is fair, what is deserved, what you are entitled to, or to choose that which is faithfulness to Christ. And I hope and pray that when that happens, the Spirit of the risen Christ will empower each and every one of us not to choose fairness, but to choose faithfulness.
like Jesus did. Following Jesus is not always going to be fair, church. It's not. Not here in this life. There will come a day where giving grace to others will feel more like a hardship than a joy. But this is the way of Jesus. You say, how do you know? Because the way of Jesus is the cross. It's the cross. Look at it with me. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time on, Matthew writes, Jesus began to explain to his disciples the way of his Father, the will of his Father, that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus, apparently turning to his other disciples, he says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. All right, we'll stop there for today. If you were to read a few verses back and put this section of Scripture into context, you will discover that just a few verses earlier, Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus does not deny this claim. In fact, he affirms it, and he testifies that God himself is the one who revealed this to Peter. He goes on to say, he says that the gates of hell will not stand against this reality. What reality? The acknowledgement of Peter that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus says that for all those who acknowledge like Peter did, that Christ is the Son of God, that He is Lord and Savior of the world, then God will grant them the keys of the kingdom. He says, I will give you the authority to bind and loose. And I believe that means that as believers in Jesus, we will be given authority to bring some of heaven down here to earth. If what you and I say in our personal lives accords, is in agreement with what God has said and what he has ordained in the courtroom of heaven, then he is going to unleash you in power into your spheres of influence to bring a little bit more of the kingdom of justice and righteousness into your world. But if, however, what you say, how you live, what you believe does not accord with what God has willed and ordained in the courtroom of heaven, then you will be bound You will not be productive, maybe from a worldly sense, but not from a spiritual one. You will bear no fruit in your life. It's all based about where your faith is placed. If you're trusting in Jesus, you will have the ability to bring more of heaven here. If you're not, you will be bound up 
and so will everyone else who listens to what you're saying. And so Peter professes this truth. Jesus Christ is the risen Messiah. Christ affirms it and he says, yes, and upon this revelation, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We're going to take the hill, he says. My people are going to take the hill. You're in charge. You're large and in charge under me. Jesus speaks, or Peter speaks this. It's powerful stuff. And then in what appears to be only a few moments later, we come to our text for this morning. And the same man who was just uttering prophetic revelation from God is now credited as speaking words from the mouth of Satan. See, Jesus comes to his disciples and he declares the way of God. It's the way of the cross. The way of unfair suffering, long-suffering, persevering with faithfulness, long-suffering for and in accordance with the will of God. This is the way. It's the way God plans to work. It's the cost that must be paid in order to dispense grace. Jesus prophesies about his coming crucifixion, and Peter, now apparently informed more by the world and Satan, speaks words that prompt Jesus to tell him, Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine if you were Peter hearing those words? Get behind me, Satan. I imagine he was pretty genuine in his concern. Sometimes we're very genuine in our beliefs, but the beliefs that we're holding are more in accordance with Satan rather than the God of the Bible. And so Peter is confronted. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely what? Human concerns. There's much we could say about this. But I think the most important thing for me to point out is that oftentimes the thoughts of humanity and this world are more in line with Satan than they are in line with the God of the Bible. Oftentimes the wisdom of this world is more in line with the demonic than it is in line with our Creator God. So Christian, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, based on this, Take heed. Take stock. Think about your thoughts, your words, your beliefs. Are they in in accordance with what God has said in his word, with what he's declared in the courtroom of heaven? Are they in accordance with his, his concerns? Or are they more in accordance with the dungeon of hell? Merely human thinking, human concerns. Many times, as you're thinking about these things, many times God's thoughts, His will, God's responses, His call on our lives, they're going to lead us into situations that do not feel fair. And more than that, from a worldly perspective, sometimes it won't be fair. We're going to do a little bit of meandering now away from the text, because this is how I feel like God wants me to preach this. But if you hang with me, I promise I'll try and connect all the dots back to our text this morning. In this section of Scripture, Jesus modeled for us, and he gave us instructions for how to think about this life. 
The call that he's given to his followers is not to live for this life alone. Take the long view, is what he's saying. If you're a believer, that is, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, by that faith in Christ, then the Bible teaches that you are now a new creation. You have a new identity. To all the folks hankering for an identity out in our world, the Bible's got something, say, something to say to you. We have an identity for you. This is who you are. The Bible tells us many beautiful things. One of the things is you're a new creation. The, dead, the old is dead. The new has come, right? You have a new identity. You're a new creation. You're no longer a sinner. But now you're a saint who sometimes sins. You're a saint. Along with that, you have a new home. And it's not here. Praise God for that, right? Your new home is in heaven. You are now a foreigner, an alien, an exile, trespassing in enemy territory. But, like a sheriff who's been deputized in the Wild West, you have authority Everywhere you walk, everywhere your feet treads, the kingdom of God claims authority there because the spirit of the king lives with you and in you. And not only have you been deputized to operate with his authority in these lands that we're trespassing, but you're also there as an ambassador. You know, like the English, the America has an ambassador. Every spy novel, the spy gets in trouble and he's in a foreign country. And where does he go to seek harbor and refuge? The place where the, the ambassadorship is, right? What's the word for that? Thank you. The embassy, right? Everywhere you tread becomes an embassy for heaven. Because you're there. Deputized in the name of Jesus Christ. But, being as that this is not our home... We're a foreigner. We live by another set of laws, a different standard. We speak a different language. Life is going to be hard and difficult for us sometimes in this world. At least it should be. If you're comfortable in this world, Christian, chances are you might be too chummy with the world. Please hear me. God is not asking us to seek out suffering. He's not asking, please don't pray for suffering. I've heard people say, man, we need to pray for suffering because it purges the church. It does have that effect, but man, don't pray for it. We live, the world is broken enough. We, we don't need to pray for that. Don't seek out suffering, but no, church. If you are loving God, if you are living with God as one of his disciples, eventually this world is going to make you uncomfortable. Why? Because you're going to come up against things that God forbids us from endorsing, forbids us from participating in. And at that point, we're called to submit to our king rather than our government. To submit to our king rather than our family or our parent. At some times... God's authority is going to trump the authorities on this earth. And when we're called to take that stand, things are going to get uncomfortable for us. As we shine a light into the darkness, that's another metaphor that you'll read in the scriptures. Those of you who've taken a nap or slept in, and one of your kids or your spouse comes in and flicks on the light, you'll know that after you've become comfortable in that darkness, when the light comes on, you're not trying to be offensive, but sometimes it's abrasive. 
That's what's going to happen to us as we show and shine the light of Jesus. Sometimes the light we're giving off is going to make the darkness and those who have been comfortable with it cringe. It's going to offend them. We will be reviled and hated sometimes by the world that has become comfortable living in the darkness. There will be a cross to bear, church. There will. And in some ways, I'm thankful that many of us in here don't really know what carrying a cross for Christ means. We don't. Because we live in an incredible country where we have an amazing amount of freedom to worship Jesus freely in our houses, in our churches, in our schools, LifeWise Academy, that our state provides protection, so that can that's amazing. Amazing. Not every Christian has the freedoms that you and I experience. And so, the cost that we pay to worship and live as disciples of Jesus is pretty low. It's a good thing, but it's not without some potential problems. For many Christians in America, we don't know what it means to bear a cross for Christ because we live with an incredible amount of freedom and, except for maybe attending a church service, maybe giving a little bit of money to the church, many Christians today in our country do with their time, with their talent, and with their treasure what any other normal, upstanding citizen who is not a believer us. Sometimes we don't look that much different than our world. Because of the blessings of our freedom, and because what I'm going to say is a failure of discipleship in the church, to understand that discipleship isn't an option, right? Discipleship is not just attending a service and maybe throwing a few bucks in. It's devoting your entire life, putting God at the center, and everything else revolves around that. Because of a failure of discipleship, and one more thing, because of false teachers on television that have convinced a large swath of the American population that if you love Jesus enough and have enough faith, well then, health, wealth, and prosperity is what you should expect in this life. If you're suffering, there's a problem. They'll say, if you have enough faith, if, if, you, if you're suffering, well, then you, might, you probably don't have enough faith. There's a problem with your faith. And to that, I want to say to those false teachers, what was wrong with Jesus' faith? Because he went to the cross. He suffered a whole lot. What was wrong with his faith? See, church, we know what faith and faithfulness looked like because Jesus showed us. It does not look like health, wealth, and prosperity. There are blessings to be sure, but it's not without suffering. For Jesus, faithfulness to the Father looked like the cross. We know what it looked like for him. What does it look like for us? It looks like loving our enemies, church. It looks like loving those who mistreat us, who revile us, who slander us. It looks like choosing faithfulness to a God who chooses love rather than vengeance. It looks like choosing to live faithful to a God rather than clinging so tightly to our idea of worldly fairness and entitlement. We have a church planter 
named Nashwan. He spoke about a year ago. Nashwan is working with one of our boys, a Napoleon kid who has since grown up, Mark Clossing. His parents are here, Ed and Beth. The two of them are planting a church with our fellowship in Toledo to Muslims, men and women and Arab Christians who have sought refuge for all kinds of reasons, immigration, political refuge, asylum, all of these things. They're trying to reach the lost with the love of Jesus to the Muslim community, the Arab community in Toledo. And Mark, Mark's a Napoleon, Henry County boy, but Nashwan, Nashwan grew up in Iraq. If you remember his story, this will be familiar to you. Several years ago, Nashwan was captured, him and his wife, by ISIS terrorists, or militants, men of ISIS. He was imprisoned, he was beaten, so was his wife. Nashwan tells the story that as he was being beaten, his captors would come in. Occasionally, they would beat his wife right in front of him. If Nashwan's heart was to cling to an idea of fairness rather than faithfulness, how should have he responded in that moment? If he were only thinking from merely a human concern rather than taking a long view and considering what God has concerns about, how would have he responded? Well, a couple of ways. One, when the guys came in to beat him and his wife, his wife, can you even imagine? And not for some atrocity that he committed, but because they declared an allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's why they were being beaten. If in that moment, if those men come in, we could sympathize and understand why he would spit on them, why he would call curses down from them, why he would cuss them out, why he would try and get free and bring some pain and vengeance upon them and visit some earthly justice upon them. I'm going to kill you for beating my wife. We could understand that, couldn't we? We could also understand him rationalizing a lie in this moment. Lord, you know my heart. I'm going to convert to Islam. Because surely, if you're good and you love me, you wouldn't want me to suffer for your name. Surely. So I'm just going to tell a small lie. You know what's true in my heart. He could have done that. He could have renounced his faith. He could have questioned God's sovereignty. If you're not going to visit justice swiftly right now, if you're going to let me suffer, then I don't want any part of you anyways. These men are evil. How could you let this happen? We could understand that, right? We know a lot about fairness and entitlement in our world. We could understand all of those things. Nashwan didn't do any of those things. Do you know what he did? When the men repeatedly came back into his cell to beat him and his wife, he prayed for them. Blessing. He prayed for the love of Jesus to be known in and through him for his captors, his tormentors. He loved his enemy's church. He chose faithfulness to God over fairness in our world to give grace, to pay the cost, 
to give grace. It cost him dearly. He's got scars. Surgeries had to happen. They beat him good. And yet, he loved him. He loved him. And if he were here today, he wouldn't like that I'm telling his story, I don't think. He doesn't want glory for himself. He would tell you. You'd ask him, how did you do that? He said, it wasn't me. It was the spirit of Jesus that lives in me. I didn't want to do it. It wasn't fair. But Jesus empowered me to love, to pay the price to give grace when it hurt, to love my enemies. Church, the Son of Man, that's Jesus. The Son of Man is going to come again in the Father's glory with his angels. And when he does, he will reward each person according to what they have done. That's not a call for you and I to work harder. It's not. It's a call for you and I to trust deeper. To depend more. To stay faithful. To choose faithfulness to Jesus over fairness from a worldly perspective. Friends, Jesus loves you. But just like he was faced with a terrible price to pay in order to give grace... There will come a day where you will face a similar choice. A choice to pay a price to choose faithfulness rather than fairness. I realize that none of us in here are in danger of being captured by terrorists, really. That's thankfully not a threat that you and I are under. So you might be thinking, well, okay, I get, I get how how choosing faithfulness to Jesus worked in that extreme situation, but can you bring it a little bit more down to earth? Church, there are opportunities every day for you to choose faithfulness rather than fairness. If you're in school and there's a jerk kid that's bullying you, the world says if someone kicks you down, well, then you kick back harder. Do you know what Jesus says? Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In your marriage, many times, it's going to feel unfair to give more, to serve more, to love more, because from where you're sitting, you don't feel like your spouse is pulling their weight, loving you back the way you're loving appreciating you the way you deserve to be appreciated after all that you've done. In those moments, faithfulness to Jesus says, I can't, I won't think about what's fair. Holy Spirit, help me give more. Help me serve more. Help me love more. Help me pay the price to give grace. You can say the same thing about your workplace. A lot of disgruntled employees out here in our world. Perhaps even here. I would think not. Maybe. Got passed over for the promotion. Not getting the wage you think you deserve. Rather than taking revenge, the application here is absorb the cost into Jesus. Take it to Jesus. Get full of Jesus. So whether you feel like you're getting paid what you think or promoted when you think, you remember that you're working for the Lord. 
He sees what you're doing. He loves you. Absorb the cost. Love your enemies. This plays a part in our politics as well. When we go to the voting booth, church, we are not a red church. We are not a blue church. We don't follow a donkey. We do not follow an elephant. We follow Jesus. That means in my family, I'm not for or against my kids. I'm for Jesus. If my kids do what Jesus is for, I'm for them. If they don't do what Jesus is for, I'm not for them. I'm against them. In my politics, the same thing. I don't follow red or blue. I follow Jesus. We, as a people of God, follow Jesus. And so when we go in to cast our votes, we're not voting red or blue. We're voting our morals and what Scripture teaches. Is it fair that men and women who have come to our country for all sorts of reasons, immigrants, some of them illegal, get to use our tax dollars for care? Is that fair? No, it's not fair. But what would Jesus do? Seriously. What does he say about orphans and widows and foreigners? He says we should love them, even if the cost is high. Now, on the flip side of that, I'm all for a safety net. God's for a safety net. We should have, we should take care of people, and the government can help in that. Is it fair to take money from hardworking people and give it to people that not can't work, but don't want to work? No, that's not fair. The Bible has something to say to that as well. But at the end of the day, here's what I'm asking us as a people of God to do. Stop asking the question about, is it fair? Do not start or end with that question. Start with, is it faithful to Jesus? End there. If we start and end there, we are going to see amazing things happen in our community and in our world. Because when we stay faithful to Jesus, you have the power to bind or loose. You bring the authority of the kingdom. Where you tread, the authority and power of God goes with you. Stay faithful, church, over fairness. Stay faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us a model of how to do this, Lord. This is so incredibly hard. It's so incredibly hard when we feel mistreated, when we feel underappreciated, when we feel like we're not getting what we deserve. Lord, our gut reaction is to is to turn to how the world would respond. Is to seek what's fair. Is to try and avoid suffering at all cost. Lord Jesus, I do not pray for suffering. In fact, I pray that you would protect us from suffering. But Father, if, if it is a part of your will for us to suffer, to pay the price to give grace, then empower us to do so with the same grace and humility that you did as you went to the cross. Help us, empower us, Lord, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. If someone asks for our tunic, not to give them just one, but to give them two. Help us to be willing to pay the price to give grace, Lord Jesus. Help us to start and end with faithfulness to you. And Father, as we do that, send us in power to this lost and hurting world to see men and women found by you and set free in you. For your glory, 
and our joy, we pray. Amen.